But for today, I'd like you to open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We find ourselves in the last number of verses of chapter 16 as we make our way verse by verse through the New Testament. Now, the scene that is taking place before us here towards the end of the chapter is that Jesus, you remember, he is in Caesarea Philippi. He is standing in front of what the locals at that time would have called the gates of hell, this large cavern that they believe these various gods would use to make their way into the underworld, and it's what they would use to come out of the underworld. And so here is Christ standing in front of that, and he tells the disciples that the underworld, the gates of hell, are not going to prevail against this church that he is building. Remember that he had said to the disciples, he said, now, who do you say that I am? And you remember that Peter quickly spoke up and Peter said, well, you're the, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, blessed are you, Peter. And the gates of hell upon this, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. The rock was, of course, not Peter, but the rock was the profession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what the church is built on, that he came, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the foundation of Christianity. Now, in this exchange that he has with Peter, we're able to see the power of God being able to change a human life. You remember that he turned to Peter and he said, blessed are you, Peter, or blessed are you, rather, Simon Barjona. Now, Simon means flat nose. So apparently, Peter had great difficulty making it through that birth canal. And when he came out, his face must have been smushed. And his dad looked at him and said, let's call him flat nose. And it, it was his name. Now, bar, of course, means son. And Jonah means dove. But here the Lord says to him, hey, hey, you flat nose son of a dove. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm changing your name in the very next verse. You're Peter. You are Petros is the Greek word. You are rock man. You're not going to be a son of a dove. I'm turning you into a rock. But upon this Petra, he uses a different word entirely, upon this confession, I am the Christ, I am the son of the living God. Upon this is what I am gonna build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail. They're not gonna win the day. They're not gonna win the war. It doesn't mean we're not gonna be hassled. It doesn't mean we won't have difficulty in life. It doesn't mean there won't be spiritual warfare or persecution, but it means at the end of the day, the Lord Jesus Christ and his church will win. Now, as he continues in this discussion with Peter, he then says a very interesting thing, beginning in verse 19, where he says, I will give you. Now, you remember from last week when he said, who do you say that I am? That word you in the Greek is plural. So he's talking to all of the guys. But now he's turning to Peter and he's saying you, this is singular in the Greek. He's talking to one guy. He's talking to Peter. And he says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, it will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on the earth, it will be loosed in heaven. So Peter is given, Peter alone is given the keys. Now what, what do keys represent? Keys represent 
authority. And what do keys do? They open lock doors. If I gave you the keys to my house and I said to you, hey, I'm going to be out of town for a couple of weeks. Would you mind just keeping an eye on the place? And I hand you my keys. What am I doing? I am authorizing you. I am giving you the authority to open up my front door and to go in whenever it would be deemed necessary by you. I'm giving you authority and I'm giving you an instrument to open up that which is locked. And Peter here is being given the privilege of unlocking the door, the gate of the kingdom of God. And what do we see Peter doing throughout the book of Acts? We see that it was Peter in chapter two that opened the door to the kingdom of God to the Jewish nation. It was Peter that got up and confronted the Jewish nation about their need to repent and to turn to Christ. In chapter eight, it was Peter that was used of God to open up the door for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to begin to work among the Samaritans. And then it was Peter in Acts chapter 10 that was used of God to open up the door to the non-Jewish world. So Peter has been given a great privilege. He spoke to these three different groups and he introduced, he introduced them to the kingdom of God. Then Jesus says, now whatever you bind and whatever you loose. Now what in the world is he talking about? Now there's a lot of crazy talk out there about what it means to bind and loose these various things. Now Alfred Edersheim he tells us that in the day of Christ, how did the culture view this? And Edersheim tells us the rabbis of Jesus' day, they spoke of binding and loosening in the sense of forbidding and permitting. They used it in the sense of yes and no. They used it in the sense that yes, you have permission or no, you do not have permission. Now, loose and bind here, it's a very complicated Greek verb tense that is used. And I think the New American Standard and the Holman Christian Standard really give us the best understanding of what's being spoken here. In the New American Standard, they put it this way. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on the earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Holman Christian Standard puts it this way. Whatever you bind on the earth is already bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on the earth is already loosed in heaven. Kevin, uh, or Kevin, Kenneth Wiest, in his expanded translation of the New Testament, he puts it this way, assuredly, I am saying unto you that whatsoever you forbid on the earth shall have already been forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on the earth shall have already been permitted in heaven. All right, so it's not the earth is dictating to heaven, but rather the earth is simply communicating what heaven has already decided. Now this is not just given to Peter because in a few weeks from now as we make our way into chapter 18, he will say, Jesus will say to the entire church in Matthew 18, 18, truly I say unto you that whatever you bind on the earth it shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on the earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now what is this talking about? It is in the context of Peter opening the door to the kingdom of heaven. Now, you and I continue to do that. 
Every time you share your faith, every time you share with a loved one, a family member, a coworker of what Christ has done in your life, you are introducing them, you are opening to them the gate of the kingdom of heaven that Peter first opened back in the book of Acts. Now, if you say to that friend, look, I'm telling you, God can change your life. Look at what the Lord has done in my life. Look at how the Lord has changed me. And I know that if God has helped me, God loves you and God is going to help you too. Would you like to receive Christ? Would you like to invite the Lord into your life? Do you want to turn to the Lord? And they say to you, yes, yes, I would like that. And so you lead them in a prayer of some sort that, all right, now, Father, I ask that you come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I'm trusting in the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Would you be the Lord of my life? A prayer, something along those lines. And they pray that. You can then say to them, with all of the authority of heaven, you are sinless before God. Your sin is forgiven. You are made righteous before God. You have eternal life. You are a child or a daughter of God. Because that's what heaven said. Heaven says it this way. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God does not have life. That's the declaration. And if your friend, your relative, your loved one has received Christ, has embraced the Son, made the Son theirs, then they have life. And you can say to them, you're saved. You have eternal life. Not because you've jumped through religious hoops, but because you have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, his finished work. Now, if they say to you, on the other hand, well, no, I just, I just don't want that. Well, then you can say to them, with just as much authority. Well, friend, as much as it pains me to tell you this, that if you continue to reject Christ, you are going to enter into a Christless eternity and you will spend eternity in outer darkness away from God. You're gonna be judged of God. Now, I want you to turn. Now, we, we don't tell them that because we're all judgy. We don't tell them that because that's our judgment. We're just telling them what heaven has decided. Heaven has said, you reject the son, you will not have life. You receive the son, you will have life. Then notice that Jesus says in verse 20, he says, then he commanded his disciples that they should not tell no one that he was uh, the son, uh, that he was Jesus, uh, the Christ. Right, so we, we are a handful of months from the crucifixion. We're just a handful of months where Jesus is going to publicly reveal himself as the promised Messiah to Israel. And he's telling them, now's not the time. All right, so you guys understand, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. All right, let's just keep that one uh, you know, close to our vest. And uh, now is not the time to reveal it. Now notice in verse 21, but uh, from that time now, that Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, underline that word must, I must. It is God's will. I must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and, the th and then be raised on the third day. Now, this is the first time that Christ has uh, spoke clearly about his death. 
Now, earlier in Matthew, uh, we had, for example, back in chapter 9, he says, hey, you know, while the bridegroom is with you, uh, you know, you're not going to be fasting, but the bridegroom's going to be taken away, and then you'll begin to fast. Well, I mean, what does that mean? That's kind of a veiled truth, if you will. And so I'm sure the guys missed that one. Uh, in chapter 16 that we had a couple of weeks ago, he referred to what he said earlier in chapter 12, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Again, kind of a mystery, mysterious saying, what are you talking about? What are you referring to? But now for the first time, it's sort of gloves are off and this is just in your face. Look guys, this is how it's gonna roll out. I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, the religious establishment, they're gonna kill me, I'm gonna be buried. Now don't freak out because three days later, uh, I'm gonna be back. Now this word to show here, is present tense, which means this is something that Christ was constantly talking about. That in every Bible study that he was doing for the disciples, the constant drum beat, the constant theme was, guys, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, bad things are gonna happen, don't freak out. And what do the guys do? They freak out, right? You really wonder, what in the world were they listening to? He's constantly telling them, all right, I'm going to talk very slow. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're not going to like me. I'm going to end up losing my life. Three days later, I'll be back. And so Jesus ends up in the tomb. And what do the guys do? They lose all hope. They, this, this whole teaching was just lost on them. Now, notice Peter's reaction. Poor Peter. I mean, this guy steps in it all the time, doesn't he? Notice in verse 22, then Peter, he took him aside. Now, if you're going to rebuke Jesus, I, I do recommend that you do what Peter does here. Go to a private place and do it so you don't look stupid in public, all right? So he, he takes him off to the side and he began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he now, Jesus, he turned, and I wonder what kind of glare he gave him. And he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God. You do not understand the will of God, but the things of men. Now, again, I don't believe that Peter was doing this out of selfish ambition. I don't think that Peter was, was trying to be offensive to Jesus at, at all. In fact, uh, Donald Carson, uh, he puts it this way. He said, Peter's strong will and warm heart linked to his ignorance produced a shocking bit of arrogance. He confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and then he speaks in a way implying that he knows more of God's will than the Messiah uh, himself. Now, Jesus says, look, you are an offense to me. Now, that, that word, it has the idea of putting a stumbling block in front of somebody, putting a hindrance. You're, you're, you're putting something in front of someone that's going to make their journey more difficult. Now, I must go. I must go because it is the will of God. And now Peter is saying, no, 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 you, you, you don't have to do that. Do you understand that you are not doing another disciple any kind of favors for you to encourage them to take an easier route in life 
that is not the will of God for them. This is why, you know, you and I, we're so accustomed to just blabbing with our mouth and just, you know, giving everybody that will listen our counsel. We need to be very careful when we speak and we're giving counsel to somebody. Do I really know what I'm talking about or am I just sort of talking off the top of my head? Now, here is Peter. He's not consoling the father. He hasn't sought God. He hasn't prayed about this. He's just telling Jesus what he thinks. But what he thinks is contrary to the will of God. You have a friend, a follower of Christ, and they're in a difficult marriage. They've been in a difficult marriage for a number of years. They, they're in a marriage that is cold. They're in a marriage that is loveless. It is difficult for them to stay in that marriage, but the person that they are married to, their behavior has not risen to the level where they have violated the covenant of marriage. And for you to then say to that person, look, you're in a toxic situation, right? I mean, everything's toxic today, isn't it? Aren't we all in a toxic relationship with somebody? You're in a toxic relationship. You're not happy. God wants you happy. You got to get out of that marriage. I'm telling you, I have seen married couples. I, I saw one couple. They went through 20 years of misery, of coldness, of lovelessness, but God worked and God brought, they were light years apart. They were as far as the east is from the west, but God in his mercy brought them together and they've got a glorious marriage today. And for you and I to say to people in situations like that where God wants to work, God wants to do a miracle there. God wants to change some hearts. And for you and I just to step in and start blabbing our mouth, yeah, you need to get out of this. You deserve to be happy. We are putting a stumbling block in front of them concerning the will of God. Well, notice now Jesus is going to use this as a teachable moment. Verse 24, Jesus then said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, you want to be a follower of Christ? All right, this is a deal. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake is going to find it. Now, he'll explain that in just a moment. For what profit, notice the logic here. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange of his soul? Now, he is not talking about self-denial. He's talking about the denial of self Self-denial is, I really want the ice cream, but I'm going to order the salad instead, right? I, I, I'm, I'm walking out this self-denial diet that I'm on, right? The denial of self is an understanding that there are two paths. There is a path that my flesh wants to walk on, and there is a path that my heavenly Father has mapped out for me. And when I come to a fork in the road, where my flesh really wants to go in one direction that is not the will of God, and the Spirit of God is bringing conviction to me that he wants me to go in this direction. If I am to be a follower, if I am to be a disciple of Christ, then I deny the path of self, and I choose to walk on the path of God's will. It's a choice that we are making. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, oh, I've got this severe arthritis, 
but it's just, it's a cross that I have to bear. No, your arthritis is not a cross. You're, you didn't choose arthritis, all right, unless you're a weirdo, right? You didn't choose that. A cross is something that you choose. You got a great job, wonderful job. You love your job. You're making more money than you thought that you would ever make. You get up in the morning, you didn't even feel like you're going to work because you love your job so much. But then your job requires you to do a thing that offends your conscience. Your job is requiring you to do something that is an offense to God and is not biblical. A disciple of Christ in that moment turns his back on that which he really loves and which he really enjoys. But it is clearly not God's will to do that. And so he leaves that job or she leaves that job in pursuit of what it is that God wants. That's what a disciple does. Now notice the logic here. He says, now, what does it matter? You've got what, 70 years, you've got 80 years, you've got 90 years. I don't think very many of us are gonna make it to 100. All right, so you got seven, eight, nine decades, maybe. Maybe you even got less than that. And let's say over the course of your life, you have all of the gold of the world. You are king of the world. You have everything. And then you die and you go into outer darkness and you are separated from God forever. What is the win? What is the win there? There's no win at all. Why do you want to get yourself sucked into a situation like that where you're going to be ending up being destroyed for all of eternity? Now, Jesus, he tells us now how we're going to be rewarded as we close with verse 27. He says this, for the son of man, he will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Now, this is not salvation, right? This is rewards for discipleship. Salvation. Salvation is not a reward. Salvation is a gift of God. It is based upon simple faith in Christ. But what he is telling a disciple, a follower of Christ, is that whatever your discipleship cost you, Whatever job it has cost you to be faithful to God, whatever relationship has, has, you know, has cost you uh, because of your faithfulness to God, whatever amount of money it's cost you to be faithful to God, whatever you have lost because of your determination to be a follower of Christ, Jesus is going to get square with us. He's going to make it square. And we are going to discover that whatever my faithfulness has cost me in this world is gonna be paid over and over and over again in the world to come. John Wolverd, he put it this way. He said, for the world, there is immediate gain, but ultimate loss. For the disciple, there is immediate loss, but ultimate gain. There is a world that is waiting for us that is absolutely mind-blowing. And our minds are gonna be blown when we step into that environment and experience the love of God in its fullness for the very first time. You don't need to be afraid of being the loser by being faithful to whatever God's will is 
for your life. Now, the will of God, the first will of God for each of us is that we would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is the first will. It is God's will that no one would perish, but that all would come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then having come to the saving knowledge of Christ, now we begin to walk in this discipleship. Now we begin to walk in this faithfulness. But salvation is simply the gift of turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, have you done that? Again, I don't know where all of you are at. And we could have someone here this morning that you have never turned to Christ, that you have never said yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. All the Bible asks for you to do is to repent. It means to change your mind. You're changing your mind about Christ. I'm no longer rejecting Christ. I'm no longer running away from Christ, but I'm now turning to him and I am embracing the work of Christ so that I might be saved. And there is that glorious exchange where your sin is nailed to the cross and his righteousness is now imputed to your account. Are you saved? Do you have a relationship with God this morning? If you don't, let's just, let's just take care of it right now. There is a simplicity to the gospel. You turn to Christ and you receive salvation. Would you like to receive salvation? I pray to God that you want to receive salvation. You can leave this place this morning knowing that all of your sin and all of your iniquity has been forgiven. All you have to do is say yes to the Lord. I want to give you that opportunity to do that right now. Again, I know this is difficult, but please understand we're all family here. We're all family. And if you want to say yes to the Lord, I simply ask that you raise your hand. And I'm going to pray for you this morning. Is there, any, is there anybody here? You want to say, yes, I, I, want, I want the Lord in my life. I want my sin to be forgiven. Is there anybody? You want to say, yes, Lord, today is a day of salvation. Is there anybody? Now, for those of us who are the followers of Christ, you remember on the night of his betrayal that Jesus, he took the bread and he said to the eleven. He said, this is my body, ripped and torn for you. Now again, you've got these 11 guys, these 11 undeserving guys. These guys, they, they don't have this stuff figured out. There's so much they don't know. Oh, they've, they've just begun. But Jesus says to them, this is my body, ripped and torn for you, for you. And he means you, and he means me. This represents the body of Christ that was turned into hamburger for us. This is the greatest element representing the love of God. The love of God is not proven to you by the size of your bank account, by how healthy your body is, by how wonderful your life is. This is the true representation of the love of God. He emptied himself, he humbled himself all the way to the cross where he was slaughtered in order that we might be saved. Oh, the love of God, what a mystery. Let's take this bread now and let's remember the love that he has loved us with. Let's take and let's eat. Then you remember he took the cup and he said, now this is the new covenant. This is the new contract. We have a contract 
with God. We have a contract with God who cannot lie. And this contract is not of our making. We didn't make this. We didn't strike a deal with God. This is a contract that he has made with us. And the contract simply states, we trust in Christ. Our sins and our iniquities, he remembers no more. They are thrown into that sea of forgetfulness. Brothers and sisters, there is no reason why any one of you should leave this place today feeling dirty, feeling condemned. You are clothed in his righteousness, not because you are faithful, but because he is faithful. He is the faithful one, and he is the one that we honor, and he's the one we worship. And so let's take this cup and let's rejoice in what is ours in Christ. Let's take and let's drink. Father, we thank you that you are the faithful God. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us an incredible story of redemption, that you are not against us, that you don't hate us. But Father, you have laid out a plan for our life. And I pray, I pray that this church, I pray that this congregation would be a God-honoring congregation this week. I pray that this church would be a church that worships you every day and honors you for the kindness that you have bestowed upon the likes of us. Here we were just being idiots and you loved us and you forgave us. You hunted us down and you gave us salvation. What a mysterious God of love you are. Help us, Lord, to walk in a wonder every day this week, wondering about the mysteries of your love. Oh, Father, help us to be a God-honoring people. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.